Exodus. Way back to the book of Exodus, chapter 15. And we'll just read a couple of verses. The second cup's open tonight, isn't it, Anna? As usual. Okay. So Exodus 15, and just reading a couple of verses, verse 22. <coughs> so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah, or bitter, that means. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And so he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters... The waters were made sweet. Then he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. And then away down verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there are twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. And so they camped there by the waters. These people were wandering in a wilderness a dry and a barren place. And God never intended mankind to wander in a wilderness. God made this earth a literal paradise for mankind. It's hard to us to imagine what Eden must have looked like before the fall. But whatever it looked like, it was beautiful, lush, pristine, untouched. The weather must have been fantastic. Always the right temperature. Always the most perfect climate for man to dwell in. It was plentiful. Enough food. Enough for everything. A world of peace. Freedom of harmony, of happiness, of plenty. But sin was introduced, and man, through sin, turned that paradise into a wilderness. And this world has been a wilderness ever since. And man, by his own making, has turned this world into something that God had not intended it to be. We know that ecologically, large tracts of this world is wilderness. We know that ecologically, we have polluted it to high heaven. The very air that we breathe is polluted. Our rivers, or lakes, or seas, everything is polluted. But worse than that, sociologically, it is a wilderness. We find that Socially, we're breaking down. In every nation, there's a breakdown, either in communications or whatever, but nation against nation, tribe against tribe. We have it in our own country, haven't we? We've had it for centuries. Sociologically, 
We're divided, we're disenfranchised, we're separated in so many different ways. But even worse than that, spiritually, the whole Western world spiritually is a wilderness. It used to be that we looked at the like of France and Germany and Belgium and places in Europe and said it's a spiritual wilderness. But they can now point the finger at the UK and say that's a spiritual wilderness and it is. Now there's pockets here and there but by and large it's a spiritual wilderness. And it seems to be that every single day when you watch the news or read a paper it seems to be that Christianity is, is under attack continually. Everything that we hold true and hold dear from the Word of God is being attacked day and daily until the nation is being pulled down into a quagmire of... Uh, so spiritually, much of the Western world is a wilderness. Very, very small percentage of people even bothers to go to church except at weddings and funerals. And even that has become unhumanistic. And so, people are wandering in a wilderness, in a dry and a barren place that God did not intend. And these people here were thirsting, and their thirst could not be quenched. Because it says, the water was bitter. It was bitter. People are looking for something to satisfy, something to fulfill, and they're not finding it because they're looking in all the wrong places. And whatever they drink, whatever fountain they go to, eventually it turns bitter on them. Do you know that Great Britain has the worst binge drinking rate in all of Europe? It's the most promiscuous country in all of Europe. It's got the highest incident of STDs in all of Europe. It's the sick man of Europe. And young people are out there tonight and drugs and drink and everything else. They're trying to find something to give them a kick, to give them a high. And now we hear about these legal highs that you can go into a shop and buy, plant food of all things, and they snort it up their nose and end up hallucinating and we saw that two young men died in England just there last week because of it and, and they're looking for something, some excitement, some thrill, something to fill the emptiness and the vacuum in their lives and it turns to bitterness. A bitter pull of disappointment, a bitter pull of failure often think of Peter whenever he failed spectacularly, tragically failed. And I often try to imagine what he must have felt like after that. To actually deny his Lord and Savior that he'd walked with for three years. Actually to swear an oath that he never knew the man. And when the rooster crowed, and he suddenly realized the depth he had stooped to, at that moment, what must he have felt? How big a failure must he have felt? How better that moment 
and his taste. I can't even begin to imagine how bad that must have felt for him. David knew about disappointment. In Psalm 55, he writes a little bit about it here. In verse 12, he said, For it was not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and we walked to the house of God in the throng. What a bitter disappointment that must have been to David when his best, closest friend, Ahithophel, his confidant, one of the only ones in the whole of the court that he felt comfortable with, could have spoke to privately and confidentially and who turned against him side it with his rebellious son Absalom. What a disappointment. And this world is full of disappointments. I dare say almost every single one of us in this room tonight has had somebody turn against us. Somebody has walked away from us. Somebody that maybe we loved, maybe we cared for. Somebody that maybe loved and cared for us, but not anymore. And sometimes we're at a loss to know why. We don't know how it broke down, what happened. And it's bitter. It's hurtful. It's painful. The bitter pull of broken dreams. Do you ever have a dream smashed? Disciples know how that felt. They'd walked with Jesus for three years. They were believing that he was the Messiah, the one that would come and the one that would set up his throne. In fact, they had themselves lined up who would sit in his right hand and who would sit in his left hand when he came into his kingdom. It was only a matter of time. They knew for sure that he was the Messiah, that he would set his throne up, his kingdom would reign, the Romans would be kicked out, those oppressors would have to go. It was only a matter of time, wasn't it? They knew that. Everybody knew that. I mean, they were healing him when he came into Jerusalem. They were putting palm leaves down. They were crying Hosanna, his name. Everybody was crying. It was only a matter of time, wasn't it? But then they're looking at him. He's on a cross. He's hung between two thieves. He's naked. A common criminal. People are going past. They're wagging their heads. They're shouting at him. Mocking him. Surely this couldn't be the Messiah. Messiah wouldn't let this happen. We must have made a mistake. We've got it wrong. All our hopes, all our dreams, all we thought for three years is all shattered as a million pieces at our feet. And they all ran, scattered and fled in fear. Lots of dreams are being broken, aren't they? Just watch the news tomorrow night. You'll see somebody's dreams has been broken. Read tomorrow's newspaper. You'll see lots of dreams that's been broken. A lot of hurting people, bitter experiences. The bitter pull of sin. We mentioned David a moment ago, but whenever you read Psalm 55, it 
You see all that treachery. We had read that together. You see all that happened. Whenever you read further in other Psalms, different places, and particularly when you read about his repentance of his sin with Bathsheba, and how that when he sinned with Bathsheba, for that, for almost a year, he tried to hide that. And eventually, the prophet Nathan exposed it. And once it was exposed, he did the right thing. He repented. A lot of damage had been done. And in Psalm 51, here's his great prayer of repentance. It's a very moving prayer. It's a very honest and open prayer. And that's the thing you love about the Psalms particularly because they're very, very honest. It shows you the men of God warts and all with all of their humanness and their failures. And he cries, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. You know, I think that it's admirable that this man in his great prayer of repentance, he's not saying, God, don't take the kingdom from me. Don't take the throne from me. Don't take my fame from me. Don't take my position of authority from me. Just don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. And on and on it goes. A lot of people looking for a fountain to drink at, to satisfy and fulfill. But they're going to the wrong ones. And instead of fulfilling them, it leaves them empty and disappointed and disillusioned and broken. But thank God there is a cure for life's bitter waters. 2,000 years ago, God gave us the cure. Verse 25, whenever Moses cried out unto God, it says, God showed him a tree. He showed him a tree. And that tree represents Calvary tonight, doesn't it? Verse 25, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. That tree had been there a long, long time. Right by the waters, 
God planted it there for that moment, for that very day and that very hour when it would be needed. God said, take that tree, cast it into the waters. And as soon as he did that, the waters were made sweet. The poison was gone. The waters were heated. And the wonderful thing about that old rugged cross that's been making bitter water sweet ever since, hasn't it? As soon as we embrace the cross, as soon as we come to Calvary, we find that our bitter waters are made sweet. We find that this cross turns failures into successes, sinners into saints, disappointments into victories, despair into hope and broken dreams into living realities, and sadness into gladness. What a tree. I read recently where somebody said, well, there are trees in deserts and they've got properties within them and no doubt there are. And if they're added to water, it can heal water. It can cleanse water. I'm sure there is. But I think this was supernatural. It may have been an ordinary tree, but God did something supernatural with it, didn't he? It's a very ordinary tree that Christ was crucified on, but boy, what that accomplished in that tree was supernatural. Life-changing. And it said in verse 25, And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance forever. The matter was settled. It's a red-letter day. Something had changed. They met with God. The issue was resolved. And whenever we come to the cross, something changes. The issue is settled. The old account is settled. Now, I know that there's things in our lives after the cross that we've got to put off the old man and we've got to deal with that old flesh. I know that. But I'm a firm believer is when we come to the cross that whatever is in that past is well and truly past. Either the cross works or it doesn't work. Either the cross heals or it doesn't heal. Either the sins are gone or they're not gone. And I'm not going to drag into the past into the murk and sin of the past, no matter where it come from, no matter what generation it come from, I'm going to dig into that. When I come to the cross, my life changed, and I had a new life, and the old life is gone. Everything has become new. doesn't mean to say that we don't have to work on ourselves. Absolutely. Sanctification is a process as well as a standing as well, isn't it? So we've got to work on things. But I'm glad whatever was in my past, it's gone forever. It's under the blood. Never to appear again. Aren't you glad for that? The issue was settled as far as I'm concerned. It says there, he tested them. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. When life's bitter waters are at their bitterest, The fountain of life is at its sweetest. In Jeremiah 2 and Jeremiah 17, 
He called himself, God called himself the fountain of living water. You remember in John 14, John met the woman at the well. And he had a whole discussion with her. What was it about? It was about living water, wasn't it? She couldn't understand it. She thought, this is a very deep well. How are you going to get a bucket? You don't have a bucket. How are you going to get the water up? And I says, now the water I'm going to give you. He says, it'll spring up from within. This is a water that you haven't even heard about. This is living water. This is water that God gives. <coughs> and ever we begin to drink of the living water, what a difference it makes. The bitterness of the past can be gone. It can be over. All kinds of things would want to try to make you better. All kinds of situations you've gone through. All kinds of people hurting you. Every type of difficulty you've gone through. It's all designed to make you better. To drag you down. Don't let it. Don't let stuff make you better. Come to the fountain of living water. And say, Lord, I'm going to drink of living water. I'm tired of that old bitter water I've been drinking at. It's poisoning my whole system. And it really does. Some people cannot let go of hurts. They just nurse them and nurse them and nurse them and nurse them. They go through their whole life nursing hurts. And sadly, the only ones getting hurt is them. That's the tragedy of it. Everybody else has moved on, but they're stuck in that hurt. And yet God has provided for us a way to have living waters. Do you remember the little story in the book of Ruth? Remember how that Naomi and her husband Elimelech and how that her, him and her two sons, Malon, Kilion, they went out into Moab because there was no bread in Bethlehem. There was a bit of a famine. When they get there, the two boys married the two Moabite lovely young woman and how that after a process of time her two sons died, her husband died and she became very, very bitter. Really, really bitter. Bitter against God, angry, sad, just bitter. Now, it's no question she got hurt. There's no question that life was tough on her. But she got really, really bitter. And then how that when she heard there was bread in Israel and she wanted to go back, she said to her two daughters, you know the story, she says, don't come with me, there's nothing there for you. Stay with your families, go back to your gods. God brought me out fully, sent me back empty. There's far less for you, there's nothing for me, I'm just a poor widow, what can I do for you? There's, you're foreigners, there's nothing there for you, just go back. One went back and one stayed, Ruth stayed, didn't she? And so they went back. And it's interesting when they went back, in the first chapter in verse 19, it says, Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. Now even say a city, you remember this is just a little village, isn't it? So everybody knew everybody. So they're all excited. All the neighbors were excited, could we say, because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? Now, Naomi means pleasant. That's what the word means. Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me pleasant. Do not call me Naomi. 
Call me Mara. Exact same word as we read Exodus 15. Call me better. What have I got to be pleasant about? Anything pleasant in my life is gone. God took my husband. He took my two sons. Brought me out empty. I was full and he brought me out and I'm empty now. What have I got to be pleasant about? This was her attitude. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. The Lord has brought me home again empty. So why do you call me pleasant since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? You can sense that hardness, that bitterness. You know, I mean, if we had been standing listening or say, she would have probably said that with a sneer. She was just so angry and bitter. And so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And you know what happened then, didn't you? Suddenly she realizes that she's got a very wealthy relative, a relative of her late husband, Boaz. Very wealthy farmer, great landowner. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. And he's out reaping his harvest with these men. So she sent little Ruth out because they were very poor and God made provision for the poor whenever the fields was being reaped. If any grain fell among the sheaves, they were not to touch that. That was for the poor people. So the poor would come and follow the reapers and that was the deal. And you know how then she began to matchmake because when Boaz saw this beautiful young Moabite woman, he, <laughs> he took a real shine to her, didn't he? He made inquiries and once... Once Naomi realized, hey, there's something in the air, then she began to match making. Long story short, she made the match and it worked. It was a great match. It was perfect. And then they got married. And verse 13 of the last chapter, verse, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better than you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. And of course, when you go into the genealogy of Matthew, you see she became in the genealogy of Christ. But imagine now she's sitting, and on her knee is a beautiful little grandchild. And she's not sent to the woman anymore. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. No. Because now she is pleasant. And now those bitter waters are gone. And now she's happy. Now she's fulfilled. This was more than she ever could have dreamed. Mm -hmm. This is more than she could wish for. And the fact it's only probably now that she's in the glory that she can say, mm -hmm. God, I thank you. I thank you for what you've done. 
and all the pain and all the hurt and all the separation in her life and all the feeling of loss, it was all gone because this little child made such a fulfillment in her life. And that's what God wants to do with people, doesn't it? Take away all that bitterness, all that mara, and give us pleasantness instead and bless us and turn all that bitterness into sweetness. And so he threw the tree into the, into the waters of Mara, and it became sweet. And they were able to drink, and they drank their full. And then he sent them on to the place of 70 palm trees, to that beautiful little oasis. He sent them there. And there they rested. Some of you have gone through, maybe some of you are going through a better experience. You didn't ask for it, you didn't look for it, but life happens, doesn't it? Stuff happens all the time. What are we to do? Are we to be like the world out there? Or are we to be different? Stuff happens to us, happens to them, but God has put something in us, hasn't he? And God has given us a fountain to drink from. He's given us a tree to go to. He's given us Calvary. He's given us his best. He's given us his son. And so in spite of all of it, there's a fountain to drink from that will give us pleasantness and blessing and grace and strength and every single thing that we need for life's journey. One day it'll pass, won't it? Every storm blows itself out eventually, doesn't it? The trick is to keep steady in the storm, isn't it? To keep holding on. To say, Lord, I trust you. This is hard. This is better. This is sore. But Lord, I trust you. I believe you. I know that you will bring me through. I know, Lord, you have plans for me that are good, not for evil, to give me a hope in the future. I know, Lord. And when you drink of that fountain, then that bitterness will begin to go. And the pleasantness will come. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are the healer of hurts. You're the storer of brokenness. Lord, there's hurts in this room tonight. There's brokenness. And Lord, you want to mend the broken places. You want to heal the hurts. You want to restore the joy and the peace and the victory. So, Lord, we come again to that place that makes it all possible, the cross. And we thank you for the victory that is in the cross. We thank you that all hell has been defeated, that there is nothing, that there's no principality or power in heaven or earth or under the earth that can defeat the believer in Christ because of Calvary. 
because of the blood that was shed. So Lord, even though we struggle sometimes in the battle, we know that you have won the war. And because you have won the war, we can and we will win the battles. It may take some time, but Lord, we are going to win the battle. We are not going to give up. We're not going to quit. We're not going to go back. We're going to go forward in Jesus' name. And thank you, Lord, for the rivers of living water that you give to each of us. And thank you, Lord, that whenever we drink from that fountain, oh, Lord, it gives us strength and hope and peace. So, Lord, for everyone tonight who's facing a battle, who's having a better experience, I pray, Lord, that you would just pour in that fountain of life. And, Lord, that you would refresh them in spirit tonight. And, Lord, that they would fully rise up determined that nothing will stop them. And, Lord, that you will have the grace for them to go through because your grace is sufficient. It's more than enough for this battle. We thank you for it, Lord. You impart it every day. Even while we're sleeping, like the dew that falls at night, quietly. Lord, you impart your grace and give us new strength for a new day. And so we thank you, Lord, for making bitter waters sweet. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.